we were responding to a business that kind of made itself. Then the category and the trend really opened up. We were met with some serious competition very quick um, before we were even properly established. The trend has since slowed. Um, The particular inbound demand really dropped off. So then we had to, like a year and a half into a business, sit down and be like, right, what are we doing? Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Maeva. Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Today's chat is with two of our oldest and dearest friends, Sage and Tali, who are the Lady Brains behind Golden Grant the brand that brought the turmeric golden latte to mainstream cafe culture. The brand has come a really long way since the early days and can now be found not only in cafes around Australia, but also on the shelves of some of the biggest retailers in the world. We're talking Selfridges in the UK and Urban Outfitters in the US. The girls have built this business with grit and hard work and have a really no BS approach to sharing the story of their success. We hope you enjoy this one as much as we enjoyed recording it. I want to know about your childhood. Were you guys entrepreneurial? What what did your childhood look like? Well, it's a very funny situation because Anna is actually a long childhood friend of ours. And when we think of that and whether we were entrepreneurial or not, there is something that springs to mind that Anna was actually involved in. So it's a massive coincidence. Um, we at 10-ish used to go into cafes and ask for hot chocolate and then critique it and um, give it a total score of five and then summarise all of these in a book with no intention of sharing the book with anyone I wonder where the book but is. ourselves. <laughs> but in hindsight, we were kind of broadsheet yeah. 20 years ago. Gosh. Yeah. For hot chocolate. For hot just chocolate. for hot chocolates. But we may have branched out. Yeah. But we just didn't know how to get yeah. the information out to the masses. Yeah. So... I mean, I don't know. The word entrepreneur is a funny word for me. But were we savvy? Probably. I used to make Sage sing Advanced Australia Fair on the street to raise me money so I could go and buy football cards. Oh, okay. that's true. Football cards. <laughs> yeah. And I would stand behind her like I was some type of manager. manager pimp. Or <laughs> pimp. <laughs> she was. I was the pimp. Harder. Sing louder. I was the obedient dancer and I was like, okay, dance more and sing more. And then as soon as we had five bucks, whether she was mid-song or not, I was like, rat, that's a wrap. We've got everything we need here. It's a wrap, people on the street. Don't come fast anymore. We're done here. That's um, Yeah, we certainly scavenged every cent we could, so perhaps we were. Mm. And the relationship is still quite similar. Tally still likes to make all of the rules and then I follow them and execute well. So. Yeah, so it's well, played I, out. It's yeah, it has. Actually, know, rule lives. number one, we'll take the turns answering the questions and you just disobey. <laughs> <laughs> On the first question. Sorry, yeah, I just want to turn that in. <laughs> yeah, they're actually both here today, but you might be hearing from one. Uh, more, more than, than the other. other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, you said that entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurial is a funny word for you. Why? Because you're not the first person that said that to us. Um, I just don't necessarily believe in all that it, it represents in this current age. Like I think it's used way too loose. I think it's mm. used as like a really glamour term. Um, I don't think there's anything heroic about what we do. Mm-hmm. I think in actual fact like our generation, definitely the next, is looking for a shortcut a lot of the time. So, yeah, I don't necessarily stand behind that word and I wouldn't, wouldn't label myself that. I just consider myself as, um, you know, self-employed. Mm. Um, and a businesswoman, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah. probably where I'm at with it. No, yeah, I definitely subscribe to the same sort of theory. I think, yeah, it's a term that's thrown around a lot more than I think it should be, and it's probably more of a buzzword yeah, than totally. a career or a label. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I see us we're small business owners, really, or like traditionally, I think that's what it's been in the past. And yeah, businesswomen, and we're self-employed, and we yeah. also have extremely high standards of um, gauging success. And I think that you need to have a lot of success before you, like, classify yourself as someone who could then influence others. Mm. And my standards are super, super high and so same sages. So, therefore, we wouldn't necessarily say we're successful. Do you know what I mean? So, like, how would people then aspire to be us? Because we're still right in the grit of trying mm. to become successful. So that's, yeah, anyway, let's not get lost in the first question next. <laughs> but it does open up I was the question say, like, of, like, what does success Yeah, how do you measure mean? that? Mm. There's lots of different factors. I think that probably if you just want to be very 
true to the moment, you would say success is being content with where you are. So we can, we, you can have success in, success in every hour, really. And for me, um, my goal's always been to work for myself, mm. um, happily with, you know, enough financial security to get by. So that level of success has already been ticked. Yes. But in terms of influencing others in a business sense, no, absolutely not. Like I'm learning, I'm like way down at the bottom and learning. And I've had almost like four businesses now. Mm. So it just depends on who it's to and where your gauge is. But, um, yeah, and like internal success is different to external and mm. influential. So, yeah, it varies so much. But mm. And I think it's a goalpost as well in a business sense that's constantly moving. Mm. Like I think before we started Golden Grind, for example, both of us would have said starting it is what the success is and now we're sort of two and a half years down the road. Success is obviously very different to what it was when we mm. started um, or even pre that when we were tasting hot chocolates. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I think in a business sense, success is definitely something that grows with you and moves with you and without having that goal and like I guess wanting to achieve something and wanting to achieve success, you probably wouldn't have the passion or the the fire to keep going. So, yeah. Success is when we got the $5 we needed to buy the football cards. (laughs) I was successful at five years old, right? (laughs) That was a wrap and we walked away. But then what did you do with the football cards? That was your collection. Yeah, like were you building a collection to sell or to trade? I don't think you even shared them with me and I did all the hard work. (laughs) Who's your football team? Oh, it's Essendon. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Next question. Carry on. Um, Okay, so you weren't always self-employed. You have had jobs before. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your early careers. What did you study? What were your first jobs? What led you to this point? Yeah, for sure. So I will take this one. So Tali studied food science and nutrition at uni straight out of school and did that. I studied law and commerce or banking and finance, so pretty different degrees. We had pretty different brains. Tali was always super sporty and really loved sort of that active side of life and obviously really interested in nutrition and food. I was more of a like a bookworm. I was a nerd, as some would probably say, and sort of went down that path. So we studied really different things. Job-wise, we had probably like the, I think it's the norm, like you turn 14, nine months I think is the legal age and you put your hand up for any cafe or retail job you can get. We both worked at Blazer, which was a menswear store, which was super random as like 15-year-old girls. I remember that. <laughs> Yeah, mm. that was my first job. I think one of your first. I had one prior. I started at 13. That's fine. You can't. That's illegal. You can tell. No, no. no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do it. Okay. It's fine. Whatever. A couple extra years experience. Yeah, fine. Um, yeah. And then went on and we had a few random cafe, hospo, retail jobs. Um, Tali had, has had a fair bit of experience in FMCG. So she worked at Red Bull and Bounce and places like that for a number of years and got some awesome, awesome experience sort of at big companies like that before jumping on board with Golden Grind. I straight out of uni went and started Wink Melbourne. Um, So Wink Models is my other business. They were based in Sydney at the time and I opened up a Melbourne office for my business partner or now business partner, Taryn Williams. So I guess away from the little sort of retail and hospo jobs, those early years at Wink were the only time I really worked for someone. I was two years into the role before I came on board as bus- as a business partner and owner in the business. So I don't actually have a lot of experience working for others mm-hmm. other than being a kid. Um, yeah, I've always been pretty fortunate that I've sort of paved that path of doing my own thing and, and wanting to sort of steer my own ship and not taking orders too well other than from Tali. <laughs> Just on the um, – <clears throat> yes – just or in case it's you <coughs> listening, we get this question a lot. We've got a um, sister that's 19 now and she asked it a lot and a lot of her friends would have as well. Do you need to study at university? I think that a lot of um, 18-year-olds are coming out of school so firing and they're like, we can do the entrepreneur thing and, you know, we can just take life by the bull, bull by the horns, whatever it is. Um, definitely, regardless, and I only know this now with quite a lot of hindsight, regardless of necessarily what the degree outcome is and what you what it could be used as practically you need to get a degree for the foundations of setting you up so you don't necessarily need to know what you want to be but I do think like for instance I studied nutrition dietetics it was a science degree um, it was very involved 
I don't practice any of those in everyday life now, but what it did teach me is the foundations and the principles behind applying yourself and setting out to achieve exam results and being very accountable in those very vulnerable years, Mm -hmm. you know, where a lot of people can get lost and don't get me wrong, you can definitely come out at 18 and fall lucky and make something of yourselves. But I do still always say to anyone asking, go to university, even if you just do a loose degree like a business or something that doesn't have a tangible career outcome, you need to get those foundations to better yourself in life. I do believe that still. Mm. And away from a school environment where it's all sort of done for you, I think when you're at uni, it's a lot more you have to fend for yourself, you have to attend your classes and, and no one's there forcing you to go. So it sort of gives you that step between high school and yeah. real life, I think, of being accountable for yourself, but someone or the institution obviously still helping with that. So, mm. Yeah, I think that's probably true for me now that I think about it because, I like, I mean, I did politics and international studies degree. I use nothing. Well, I did business as well, but I don't use a lot of the learnings practically yeah. in life, but it definitely taught me critical thinking. It taught me how to communicate. It taught me how to extract information from different places and, you know, formulate a view and all of that sort of stuff. So I would definitely, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think there is this narrative around you can do anything. Mm, You have an Instagram account and an internet connection and it's kind of detrimental in a way Mm. to push that narrative onto young people. And same with those early jobs that you have. At the time, they can seem so insignificant. Like Sage was saying, oh, we had hospo jobs. And yeah, they are insignificant. However, every single workplace can teach you skills. Even if it is interacting with others or learning to work under a manager, it doesn't matter what it is. You will look back and say, believe it or not, I learned all these skills along the way doing those irrelevant jobs. Mm. So it all comes together to make you who you are. And I think that if you ever do want to do your own thing, you need all of those skills. You need as many skills as you can get. Mm. So in every job that you're in, if you don't want to be in it necessarily for the long term, just sitting in the now and say, right, what can I extract from this that's going to help me in some Mm. way in the future? That's all you need to focus on. If your manager is a pain, just look at them and say, right, well, they're obviously a manager for a reason. How do they get there? What is it that they have? And learn and take and copy or ask questions that are going to help you gather those skills later in life. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So let's change gears a little bit and talk about the golden grand story. So turmeric lattes, the yellow lattes are literally everywhere. But the very first one started in a little cafe in the hills called Evolve. It did. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we had a cafe at the time. Um, Tali was managing it with our mum. We grew up in the Danon Ranges outside of Melbourne for anyone sort of not local, knowing Belgrave or the hills. Really beautiful area. So we were sort of out there. Our mum has always had a really sustainable and ethical view to sort of what we ate and consumed. And we were really lucky growing up. That's sort of what we were taught. So the cafe was focused on that, sort of the first of its time or one of the first that really had – a really strong view towards the ingredients in the food that we made and um, and served and that was the whole premise of the cafe was based on that. So with that came healthy alternatives to coffee. So we were serving a golden milk or golden latte. They've been around for thousands of years. We don't claim to have come up with that idea. Um, we, yeah, were serving it in there and, and saw its popularity grow as people tried it and came in and a lot of people commuted from Melbourne and to this cafe to check it out and they tried these turmeric lattes and they're like, these are awesome. So we saw the rise of them go up to the point that we almost sold as many lattes as coffee, which in that's Melbourne yeah, is a huge thing. <laughs> like, yeah. um, Melbournians love their coffee. So, yeah, saw the popularity grow. It was a bit of a pain to make up, like physically. It stains mm. your hands and um, anyone who's dealt with turmeric knows that it sort of gets everywhere. So as you do, you sort of look for alternatives. We looked to try and buy it made up somewhere with the spices that we were using and the quantities that we're using. To no avail, Google had nothing, which is a bit rare. Really? Yeah. So we couldn't find anywhere that you could buy this or these set of spices in a bag. And we were like, oh, that's a bugger. Mm. Um, So then, yeah, sort of led to the thought process of, well, why don't we bag it up? And at the time we had a few friends that had cafes as well in Melbourne and who had been sort of asking about it, like we chat sort of industry stuff and and said, oh, if we bag it up, we can give it to them too and save them having to make it up or they can sell it down in Richmond or wherever else in Melbourne. So that's pretty much where it stemmed from. It was a real organic growth mm. um, that came from having that cafe. As Tally said, our hospital backgrounds did come in handy. 
Probs just yeah. quick read to Ren, who's not here, our third mm. business partner, because it was his idea to put it in a band. <laughs> we don't mention it, he'll just kill us and cut the podcast and come after Lady Brains. You so. don't. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Yes. Yes, I did use that. Yes. The, pers- the actual voice that said, we should put this in bags and give it to our friends was Renwick. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and then it just grew organically from there. So the few cafes that we were selling it to, People caught on to them selling it. Other cafes asked for it and it was just sort of a snowball effect mm. um, of people, I think, being educated on what it was through our product. We kind of sort mm. of been <clears throat> the first brand to do it. Um, we were really lucky that with the education of what is a turmeric latte to people who didn't know, it was sort of us. <laughs> we were the turmeric latte. Yeah. So it grew by word of mouth from cafe owner to cafe owner to cafe owner. At what point did you go, okay, actually if we're proactive and we start approaching cafes, like we could really change the trajectory or like step change the growth? Probably uh, within a couple of months. I would say the opposite. I would say for the first year we were not proactive, we were responsive. <laughs> like yeah. I know that sounds the complete opposite to most startups, but we didn't do anything proactive in the first year. We responded to demand because mm. it was so fast and there was so much inbound um, inquiry that we just could barely keep up with that. Wow. We really didn't go out seeking business for the first year. No, we more found distributors to help us. To help us move like, it, yeah. yeah. But in terms of actually going and pitching it, we didn't do a proper sales pitch for a long time. Well, maybe that was unusual having the demand for the first year. Not a lot of startups have that luxury. We're, yeah. we've, we've now realised we've actually done, what did you call it, a reverse startup. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we did start up backwards. So yeah. Um, the business happened organically. The sales grew very fast, very quick. There's a lot of momentum very early. We were responding to a business that kind of made itself, mm, right? Yeah. Then the category and the trend really opened up. We were met with some serious competition very quick um, before we were even properly established, you know what I mean? So then we had to kind of survive through all of that, which we did comfortably. The trend has since slowed um, the particular inbound demand really dropped off so then we had to like a year and a half into a business sit down and be like right what are we doing <laughs> how do we do startup right, yeah. right. Do start-up. hang on where's that strategy that. doc um, <laughs> yeah. oh right we haven't done it yeah. <laughs> now seems like a good time it was we're, we're about 18 months in and we sat down and we're like right let's have a strategy meeting <laughs> what are we doing with this brand yeah um, yeah where do we want to go and I think that's when we actually started our startup the first year we had some type of lucky. It mm. doesn't happen to everyone. So, yeah, definitely don't think that that's the norm. We had a very lucky entry into the marketplace. So what was that conversation like 18 months in when you're like, oh, we actually have to be proactive and we have to be thoughtful about how we're going to grow this business? It was exhausting because mm. even though we didn't necessarily – be proactive in that first year and we weren't doing things traditionally as a startup, we were exhausted because there was so much manpower involved in getting us through that first year and a half. There was so much rapid growth that we had to keep up with that by the time we sat down and we all looked at each other and we were like, we've got to build a business from this properly from the ground up. We were already tired, but we knew we had to do it. Mm. We wanted to do so, of course. And then it just, it was hours and hours of where do we want to go? This is, this is kind of already what we have and this is where we wanted to go. So we have to kind of merge them and decide what we want to be. At the time, we decided that we wanted to be the world's number one turmeric brand. Um, that's how we identified ourselves and we know that that was our niche. And then from there, we can then decide on every other things like product development mm. and yeah, the whole brand strategy. So it was full on. Because we were already tired and then we were having all of those conversations. And also at the same time we were trying to sustain the current business that was mm. there. So we weren't sitting down. For instance, if you're sitting down wanting to start a business, you usually have the time or uh, – well, you don't actually. That's probably a myth. No but one has would, time these days. No, no one has time <laughs> these days. But you would like to think that there's some type of capacity to do so, whereas we were already all working full-time, already had a very consuming business and then having to do a lot of the startup work. Mm, so mm. yeah it was full-on but it was um it was exciting like I mean I'm certainly mm. not saying poor us we was lucky us because we already had income coming in and there was mm. business and a demand and a name and all of those things so yeah but we had to be very specific with where we wanted to go and we knew if we didn't make the right decisions at that time that the business could go either way so what were some of those decisions what did we want to be 
So at that stage, I think we were still primarily considered a turmeric latte brand and we were seen majority of the times in cafes. Um, we were very Melbourne. We were very specific to our demographic. So we were talking to people of our age. And then, yeah, we said, well, like, what's a long-term goal? What is this brand? Where is mm. it going? And hence, we want to be, you know, a, a global turmeric brand. So then we needed to really entrench ourselves in what that meant. Like, what is turmeric? What is that? space and yeah how do we achieve that so that's how we've diversified and changed our business I want to step back a little bit and talk about that first 18 months who was behind the brand um, in terms of building the actual brand that you know you have now and how did you split those roles and responsibilities to get to that point where like okay now we really need to sit down and talk about it and create the strategy moving forward so three of us started it um, and the three of us were th- the creators of the brand. Um, we were very all hands on deck. Uh, we were very scattered. We had no, as we said, no business plan. We had no set structure because it all kind of just happened very quickly. We were very lucky that we lived together at the time. So we sort of would just work at all hours that were in the house and everyone would do a bit of everything. The only way we did semi-divide roles was just playing to our skills so and our strengths. And we were lucky that the three of us had strengths in different areas. Um, Ren is an awesome sales guy and has a really awesome background in sales. So he was good at talking to customers or cafes at the time and forming those relationships and talking about the contracts and everything else that comes with that. Tally's obviously got a background in nutrition and food science. So she was able to give credibility to the brand and talk about the nutritional side of it and educate our customers on why would I drink a turmeric latte? Scientifically, she was able to back that up and it wasn't just a fatal trend that we wanted them to take a photo of a yellow drink. Um, We wanted it to be more than that and tell them why. And then I obviously have the legal and commerce background. So I was able to help with things like setting up trademarks and and bank accounts and all the fun stuff that comes with that area of the business. Um, but other than those strengths that we sort of naturally formed, it was very ad hoc. It was very It was far from scattered. ideal, to be honest. It, yeah. there, there was a lot of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so. with chaos can come um, a lot of, you know, tension. And that, that's the reality. There was a lot of tension for the three of us um, only because there was so much to get done and there wasn't clarity with who was doing it. There was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of time wasted. There was a lot of indecision. There was a lot of wrong decision. There was a lot of mistakes, all excellent learnings. But at the time it just, when I look back now, it was chaos. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so it's not recommended. No. <laughs> and three, we're obviously a family as well. So Tally and I are sisters, Renwick is Tally's husband. Um, so a family living together in chaos. There was... <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of tension. There was not far to go from each other when the others were sort of getting under your skin. And it probably, it wasn't until that 18 month mark that we sat down and said, right, what are we doing about this before our family falls apart? How are we going to create something that is sustainable and that we're all happy to do and carry on with? Um, and that's the point that we sort of gave each other or gave ourselves titles and roles and really clearly defined the tasks that everyone was accountable for, which has worked amazingly since um and now we're super clear and it's definitely run a lot more like a proper business now so we made some huge decisions at that stage and we can go into them in more detail but for instance we got a business coach and we've always since then invested heavily in a business coach because we knew we wanted to make this a long-term um highly profitable business and to do that we really needed to start properly so we got a really experienced qualified expensive business coach and since then, yeah, like I said, things have been a lot clearing. Um, but up until that point, so 18 months, we all still had full-time employment on top of God and Grind. So, yeah, that was pretty relentless in terms of hours in the day and not having enough. Do you think you have to do that for, to, to build a successful startup, do those crazy kind of hours? I yes. think it depends. Well, yes, in terms of giving yourself, you want to um, if you're passionate about what you're doing. We weren't funded or financed. Um, Golden Grind always paid for itself. We were really lucky in that sense because of the demand early days. Um, the money that we got from early sales, we just kept reinvesting in the business. So we never took anything from it, but we also didn't really have to put into it. We never had to seek investment. So, But we did have to continue other jobs so we could pay for our lives. We obviously didn't take money from the business or take salaries at that point. Um, I think if you do have financial backing, it makes it a lot easier 
to not have to do two jobs um, and to have that freedom. I think that's what it gives you when you have some finance behind you, but not everyone has that luxury and it's obviously a different path if you're wanting to get back in and finance um, or if you're wanting to bootstrap it and try and do it yourself and, and maintain full ownership of the company. So two very different decisions that you can make when starting a business in those early days. You um, do though. When your hours, hours are restricted, you're much better at getting shit done. Mm. I do think it kind of helps with the momentum and the drive. Early days it can kickstart you off. When you're in that crazy adrenaline mode, personally I find it actually a little bit more productive because you don't have any other time but to get shit done everything is outcome driven and like we would sit down on a night make massive decisions fortunately we're three so everything was a vote which I highly recommend Mm -hmm. even if you're doing business alone and you do want to seek some type of like outcomes try and get two other people so that it's always a three or obviously an odd number so that you can always have an instant outcome I think that if you're always sitting internally you know that's a struggle in itself Two, again, it could be a lot of back and forth. So three, Mm. cut through that straight away, great, saved us heaps of time. Um, And we had to make decisions daily pretty much. So there isn't that ability to, you know, like sit on something, ponder things. Um, It just gets you done. Mm. So, yes, an element of having that restriction early days worked for us, for sure. Forced us to work harder and smarter. Yeah. So when you're in that mind state of just constantly making decisions and getting shit done it's really amazing in one sense because you're always building momentum and you're moving forward really really quickly how do you balance that with the need to sometimes step back and think about okay making all these decisions on the daily but where am I actually going exactly have you found that challenging or super yeah Yeah. super hard and that was probably took us 18 months to get to that point we were all quite burnt out as I said we were all there was heaps of tension we were all super tired but it wasn't until 18 months in that we stepped back and we're like, okay, we're either going to crumble or like step back and take time for us and figure out what we're doing and what trajectory are we on and where are we going. Um, and I think someone said to us at that 18-month point to the three of us, oh, what's your elevator pitch? And I answered with like a paragraph and then Ren cut me off and had his paragraph and Sage finished with hers and they were like, one, that was an hour-long essay. That was not an elevator pitch. I don't know what elevator you're catching. The one that got space and back. The one that got the stuck. The tallest building in the world. Yeah. Yeah. We and broke it down so we were stuck in there for an hour. And you lost me in the first sentence, which is something wish-washy about, like, turmeric. Like, what the hell? I don't, I'm not having a curry. Like, I don't understand what your business is. I think that's when we all looked at each other and we were like, yeah, we've, like, done this backwards massively. So mm. we did massively need to withdraw and actually build some foundations Mm. and I couldn't stress like strongly enough that every single business needs strong foundations you are if you want to build a high rise you're not building on you know cotton Mm. that's being quickly sewn you need to build on concrete slabs we didn't at 18 months have those concrete slabs so we had to go back down to the basement (laughs) and put them in (laughs) so you've diversified um, from the you know original blend, uh, turmeric blend, to powders, teas, soaps, body products. Can you tell us more about this product range? Where did you get the money to create them? You know, where were the decisions made? So as Sage mentioned, everything within our current business model has been self-funded. So very, very fortunate, absolutely no doubt about it. The business has self-funded itself to this point. Having said that, it's come with a heavy investment in terms of time into logistics because we now are so delicate with managing stock and inventory because we don't have the luxury of over-ordering. Um, obviously, you cannot afford to under-order either and be out of stock. So I suppose that in the past two and a half, almost three years, we've had to learn internally how to juggle that cash flow. That's probably an added um, element of the business that, again, as Sage said, if you had the investment, you probably wouldn't need to do. Um, but In terms of the products, when we sat down at that 18-month-ish mark and decided we're going to be a turmeric brand, we then looked globally to trends and we've studied the category intensely and we've come up with what we believe is missing and then we've put some serious investment and time into developing these products. So they're not just um, at a whim. Everything has its purpose. It's all been, you know, seriously researched from the three of us. Um, We believe that they're missing and we believe they all have longevity in them. So... But at the same time, they all honour turmeric as an ingredient and that's obviously what our brand is and what it means. So 
how did they come about? I suppose we just wanted a great portfolio that breached into a lot of different retailers. That was important to us as well. Um, and yeah, we just really wanted to celebrate the spice in all its different aspects. Early days, we traveled to India to meet with the farms that we we're getting our turmeric from. And when we were there, it's the best thing we ever did. And I, yeah, would highly suggest that if you're working close with a product that you know it from inside out, because when we were there, the Indians said to us, lol, you know, Westerners are so funny. You're just having shimmering now. Hello, like 3,000 years ago. Um, <laughs> lol. Did they actually say lol? Did they say lol? Yeah. The 90-year-old or Indian. Well, well. God. Um, but they also said we would then hope you're obviously putting it on your skin topically because you do realise that's how it's probably more used in Indian culture. And we were like, oh, shimmering in your skin, like heaven forbid, it would stain. Anyway, a lot of conversations and a lot of teachings. We've since learned that it is an excellent um, skin ingredient and we've found ways that really celebrate that, we believe. Um, and it was from the cultural education that we came to learn that. That wasn't something we could pick up off Google or that we've somehow copied over here. You know, we had to be there and feel that and we've learned that and we've then created these products that um, hopefully show that. Um, so that's how they've, yeah, I suppose that's and- how it's come to where it is yeah when we sat down and at that i guess we'll call it the 18 month mark and had that strategy meeting and we set our sort of why and and what we wanted to be and why we wanted to exist as a brand and that was to bring turmeric to everybody every day so the product range also stemmed from that as how can we stop talking to our own demographic and talk to others and and broaden that consumer and talk to all different markets in all different ways so that well, hopefully um, our aim is to make sure that everyone uses turmeric every day because we believe in its medicinal powers and the effect it can have on the body and trying to improve people's lives. So that also was a big driving force into where we went with products and, and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about the product development process? In terms of practicality with things, Google is definitely best friend. Knowledge is power, so ask a million questions to everyone you meet and, you know, everywhere you go. There's a lot of moving parts to any product that we've developed. But I think that probably do a lot of research before you commit to anything. I mean, working with key partners is probably something else I would say. So we've found some really good manufacturers over the years that we're really like so pleased to be working with and they respond the same. So, you know, like smaller MOQs and higher integrity products, stuff like that's really important. But probably also... And we did this very early on, like when we first started, um, focus groups, asking your friends, getting that direct feedback that isn't your own because you get stuck in your own head and obviously you know a lot more than the Joe Blow would know. So you must reach out wherever you can, getting as much advice and feedback on things as you can. We've made some mistakes along the way because we didn't get enough feedback and do enough research on products. And yeah, try and diversify that feedback too. So don't just obviously reach out to the same demographic, try and get as much as you can. And then, um, yeah, just juggle. Well, we've had to always just juggle your cash flow. So make sure that, you know, as you're launching one thing, you've got the um, capabilities to do it properly. We probably didn't do that early. We're learning that much more so now and trying to do that now more so than ever. So, yeah, give each product what it needs to hit the market properly. Mm. So have the right labelling and have the the right call-outs and the right objective for that product and preach it to the right customer in the right way through the right retailer surround it with the marketing that it deserves. Yeah, just do everything properly, I would say. That's what we've learned. When you conceive of a product and you start developing it and getting samples and getting that customer feedback and so forth, how important is setting a target margin for that particular product with the view that it will go into retail, wholesale? Um, so important. <laughs> yeah. Without that, you will not have a business. So yeah. do you start with that when you're thinking about a product? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, so luckily, <clears throat> as I sort of touched on earlier, Italian and Ren both had backgrounds in FMCG, so knew sort of what the margins were that yep. distributors and wholesalers yep. expected. So from day one, we always knew those margins and we always worked to them and we always made sure that we put a price point on our product that made sure we could always produce it. And we have had products in the past that, because of different factors, increased production costs and things like that, that balance has gone and we've just had to discontinue really? the line. And we've wow. just had to say, despite the fact we know our customers love this product, we can't viably make it and it doesn't make sense mm. for us as a business to produce it for a margin when we're losing money on production. 
And because, as Tally said, we do everything and we try and make every product with as much integrity as possible, mm. it's expensive and you don't get the best products cheaply. That's mm. just the the reality of it. And we make everything in Melbourne and, and keep it all as local as possible because that's important to us. Mm. Um, but, again, it's an expensive option. We don't just jump over to China at every opportunity to import something at a fraction of the cost because it's just not what we believe in as a brand. But then we sort of have always tried to balance it without outpricing ourselves. We don't mm. want to be a product that people can't afford. We want people mm. to be able to put us in their shelves and and that's really important. And all people, we want it to appeal to all demographics and we think everyone should have access. So it's a fine balance when you want a good product and good ingredients and also you don't want to outprice yourself. You have to sit in the middle. But, yeah, you have to be really savvy about what those margins are. Mm. And they're, that, are they higher than you think? Do you know what I mean? Like if your cost of goods is X, you would be surprised how much there needs to go on top of that mm. for everyone to be happy. So don't ever underestimate what those margins are. And particularly we've used a distributor model, which, you know, we can go into, but the distributor will take a substantial amount, then the wholesaler takes a substantial mm. amount. Mm. You know, so to actually you achieve your RRP, yeah. there's yeah. so many steps involved along the way that you you can be so super safe. Yeah. And so for people listening who might be developing their own product or thinking of starting a product-based um, business, what advice would you give to people in terms of how to find out that information and seek the right information from the right people? Ask questions I think is a big one. Always ask. Uh, I've been shocked and I'm sure Tali will agree how willing people are to help when you put your hand up and say, can you help me? I'm a new brand, whether that is asking retailers, um, you're probably, the major's probably, you're not going to get onto the right person, but if they are smaller retailers, asking them, um, going into your local store that you want to eventually sell into and saying, hey, a bit of a random question, but are you able to tell me a rough percentage? Um, talking to brands that are in those retailers, if you can, or if you know someone. And yeah, saying, I would suggest working that way up. Either way. Uh, yeah, yeah, either way, if you can, but trying to find a product who, that you can contact and, and ask them rough breakdowns. I mean, we're happy to disclose it. If someone wants to reach out to us and say, can we sit down and have a coffee and talk about it? We've got no issues disclosing mm. what our rough breaks are. Mm. Yeah, you, you're much better off to have that foresight than going blind. And knowledge is power with yeah, everything yeah. when starting a business. The more knowledge, even if you're getting slightly different answers from a range of people, you can sort of pull them together. You're better off to, mm. yeah, seek out more and, and yeah, knowledge is definitely power. You must have built in retail and wholesale margins into your product from the early days. So you must have always had a view that you were going to be um, in retailers, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about that process? Like how did you move from cafes to direct to wholesale retail? Can you talk to us about that? Yep. So again, that was just very fortunate because Rennie and I had experience in the direct industry. Um, so we were aware of those breaks and we were also aware of the different model options. For us, we see the distributor model as a logistics solution. So it's our way to actually get goods out on mass. Um, and that's what we've chosen to go with. If you didn't have a distributor, you would be doing the shipping and dealing direct with the wholesaler yourself. So that's your choice. Obviously, then from then you've always got your wholesaler margin and then that should align to what your kind of online margin would be because obviously a lot these days is also online. Um, you want to make sure that your RRP is online will match that that's hitting the store. But then the other thing to consider online, which a lot of people don't, is the shipping costs mm. um, and obviously your internal costs that you wear by doing things yourself manually. That's why we decided to go down this distributor path is because we didn't have the manpower at the time to do any of those logistics and we mm -hmm. saw it as a really great solution to reach um, the whole of the country. doesn't necessarily have to be the way. Like in terms of advice, what would I give for other people? Consider both options. Mm. Um, the reality is some products just don't have the margin in it for mm. it, so you just have yeah. to make it work yourself. Yeah. You won't have the option to go to a distributor. We did and, we've well, it's important to us. We've always made the cost of goods wear it. Do you know what I mean? So that's that. That's it's always been important to us. Mm. And I think the other thing we've done from the beginning is um, we've had the long term goal of reaching the majors, and that mm. is another element of um, factoring in percentage and cost there. Yeah. And you need to do that from the beginning because you obviously can't change your pricing once you're in. Once the RRP is set in the marketplace, it's set, and once your cost of goods are determined, they're determined. So you need to allow from that from the day dot. Yeah, reach for the stars. Always have it in there if you can, because ultimately mm. you want to get to a major. The really interesting thing for us and for a lot of people, particularly in this particular foodie, wellness, beauty space, is that you ultimately think of the two major shopping 
supermarkets. supermarkets. Two major supermarkets come to mind. Of course, it's a bit of a monopoly here, so you do. However, that doesn't necessarily mean they're best for your brand. And I think it's taken us this long to realise supermarkets aren't necessarily best for selling Golden Grind because you need to remember who is the customer, where will they purchase your products. Mm. Yes, you can get the most distribution through supermarkets, right, and have the largest footprint, but will your customer purchase you in that in that place at that time, at that moment? And for us, the answer is no, right? And it's taken us this long to realise, actually, no, you're not necessarily going to a supermarket to spend X amount of dolly on, dollars on a face scrub or a face mask that's really going to improve your skin long term. Do you know what I mean? Like you're mm. in the mindset of buying your groceries for the week. Sure. So you're not necessarily there to be educated and commit to that spend. You really need to understand your customer and the place of purchase and then go and chase your retailer. It doesn't have to be a major retailer to be the best outcome for your brand yeah. or your yeah. product. And I think that until you understand that and you stop just thinking that the two big guys at the end prize – until you realise there's so many different options and, you know, even if it is that you may do best just online. Do you know what I mean? You may not need that retail presence anymore. So focus on that. Um, So, yeah, we've kind of lost sight of caring about necessarily where we end up in terms of using big brands or using footprint and we're caring more about where will Golden Grind sell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where are our customers? How can we talk to them best? What's important for us? That's a great point you make. Sometimes that's where the ego starts to also creep in. Yeah. Um, but it's really understanding your customer and how important is it to, you know, do you follow all, you know, your analytics and do you really dive into who your customer is, where they are, you know, how they shop? Do you look into that often and, and use that information? A lot more so now. Yeah. yeah, it's becoming really important to us now. Because we're on that verge of really stepping up and upscaling and going to the next level, you have to understand that. If you don't understand that, like at the end of the day, who are you talking to? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you don't understand who you're talking to and why and whose money you're taking, then what are you like, what mm. are you preaching? You so you need you need to understand it. Yeah. But it can also be as simple as thinking stopping and, and stepping away from the situation and stepping into a consumer, your own consumer shoes. And I know early days as Tally said that we did chase the majors. And then we sort of stopped and I was like, guys, 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 I'm not spending 20 bucks at Coles on turmeric latte when I go to Coles. So yeah. how can we ever expect someone yeah. else to? Yeah. It's my own brand. I'm not going to buy it. Yeah. So we sort of had those discussions and then from there we're like, okay, well, where would we buy it and then where would our customers buy it and what does that look like? And it probably actually comes from we had a few approach us um, probably about 12 months ago now mm. And say, we want your brand. And we were like, initially, you're like, awesome. This is everything we've ever wanted. And we sat down as a team and said, actually, I don't think that deal is right for us. And as strange as it was at the time, going back to these majors and going, you've given us an amazing opportunity and we're really grateful, but we're politely declining. And they were sort of, what? You're saying no to us? You're the little turmeric brand and we're this humongous major that can really help elevate your brand and we said but it's just not right for us it's not right for us now it's not right for our consumer and we're saying no so and it was like I probably don't we don't want to get too specific but it was a super definitely was a like a big retailer and the conversation was very corporate and the meetings were really intense and we got lost in the romance and the ego in the beginning don't get me wrong and in actual fact it was Sage and I that did a lot of the meetings (laughs) And literally halfway through the meeting, it's like a light switch went off and I was being spoken to really poorly by someone in like a high place of authority. And I was like, and what the F am I doing here listening to you like bark prices at me and try and dictate my brand to me? And Sage and I were kind of like, no, Mm, just like actually no. Hang on a second. We've just lost everything we're about like in that glimpse Mm. of maybe we're going to be with some like a big player here. Mm. So we walked away and Sage and I were like, no. And like they followed up with a really responsive keen email and we wrote back and we were like, no. We said no. <laughs> no means no. no. I'm not of, interested. A, we're not interested. And a, so many people, I can, in fact, almost everyone around us was like, you're being stupid. Mm. You, this is the right thing. You've got to do it. Like, come on, everyone shops there. And we were like, no. Like, we've got confidence in our brand. We've, we've put everything into this. We know where it's going. We'll, we will steer this ship. We yeah. won't be steered. And it happens so often, guys, that a major retailer will come along and grab a brand and steer its ship. And I'm sure you've all heard of a million stories, but you can hold the reins. You can do it. We will do it. We will show you how we'll do it. And we, Yeah, we partner now with retailers around the world 
who are huge, who are awesome to work with and who are really nice people who we have awesome relationships and, and the product works in that space. So it's not that we've said no to all the big guys because we're trying to be sort of mm. David and Goliath story. That's not the case at all. It's just finding those people that work with you and who work with your brand and who support that rather than people who are sort of just going to chew it up and spit it out if, mm. if they don't like the taste. Yeah. And you did launch with Selfridges in the UK, which is awesome. Well done, guys. Can you tell us more about that process? For sure. Um, so they are one of the ones we work with that are awesome, really easy to deal with, really supportive of the brand. Also, conveniently, were awarded the best retailer in the world um, at the same time of taking us on. So that was pretty exciting. So great. Yeah. They actually approached us. It's a bit of a funny story. Wow. They, yeah, their buying team sort of were doing research and they were doing a focus on Australian brands at the time. Um, so they had just sent a cold email and Tali monitors our generic email sort of from the website and she went to delete it and she was like spam and and we were like "Mm, maybe just reply just like you're not going to get a virus you'll be right like just maybe say yeah hey that's interesting let's chat it wasn't spam they were legit they wanted to include us as part of their showcase on Australian products and so we went in for that it was meant to be temporary and the run rates were really great and it sold out really quickly which was awesome Um, And we became a a permanent fixture in their food hall, which is really exciting. But, yeah, so just organic growth. We were lucky through that. They actually found us through Instagram. So as much as we aren't huge believers in in social media to create a startup, it's a useful branding tool and that's where we saw that come into play. Um, And we'll touch on that a little bit down the track. But, yeah, it was a really, again, we're very lucky. It was quite an easy process. So you obviously didn't launch your brand in the golden era of Instagram um, where there was no algorithm and, you know, you launched a brand into a really saturated, competitive online space. How did you grow your Instagram and social following and how actually is it important for you? I mean, it's a useful branding tool, but how important is it in terms of converting to sales? I'm a bit of a social media hater. Sage and Ren aren't necessarily haters, but they're not necessarily huge fans either. They're somewhere in between. We've had a lot of internal debate about social media. When we first launched, um, I'm not ignorant. I knew we needed to play in the space, um, but I never wanted to give it attention. I didn't even want to talk about it. I don't, we've ne- I've never even really wanted to put any strategy behind it because I'm like, let's token it, um, but let's not waste and be ignorant by with what it can achieve. Um, I'm a little bit old school and I just believe very much in hard work and a lot of other things. So, we also then thought, right, with minimal um, effort and time, how can we have maximum impact? So we were like, let's do something a little bit different. And hence you'll see on our current Instagram feed, we've highlighted our hero color, which is the yellow on the feed, um, just so that we have that point of difference, recognizable, branded, but it certainly hasn't been anything that's taken too much of our time. It also doesn't cost us anything. So we've never spent any money, um, interestingly, on social media It's never been a strategy for us. Why? Because I think it's so heavily saturated. I also think it was becoming too much of a reliable source for trying to build a startup. And I don't think that you should necessarily rely your like an element of marketing. It's just one element of digital marketing to build a whole brand. Going back to my concrete theory, there's so much involved Mm. um, that really in the beginning, particularly for us in survival mode, we didn't have the resources to sit down and be like, and let's spend 10 hours on social media this week. It just wasn't there. So we were quick in knowing that, right, let's do something a bit different, very true to our brand. You know, let's be very honest through our social medias. And so we're very educational. You know, our pictures are all our own. They're authentic material. We've always done all of those um, types of things, but yeah, we've never focused on it. It's worked for us because we have slowly built an element of, you know, customer base. I wouldn't say that we've got massive followings. I think in this day and age, you can have a lot bigger following than we have. We have a respectable amount of customers. They're all probably very loyal because they've been built slowly and for the right reasons, because like I said, we're very open and honest and true in our posting. Doesn't necessarily mean it was right or wrong, but our decision wasn't to invest in that social media channel. Yeah, we haven't done the influencer thing. We've never spent money on it. Um, Yeah, that's just how we've chosen to go. I think we can still be identified by our social medias. Like I said, I'm not ignorant. I know that people refer to them when they first hear of a brand, you know, and you can be recognised by them, but I don't think you need to get lost in them. And I think that that was happening um, for a period there. I think people were getting a little bit blindsided with the importance of them and getting a bit lost in them. And I think the algorithms and the change in 
now of like um, the rankings is probably a good thing because it means people are having to think harder and more about other traditional methods of marketing as well. Yeah. Like you're not just solely relying on That's it. True, yeah. yeah, so it's kind of pushed us back to thinking, all right, I can't just rely on one post to reach all my eyeballs. I need to think of other ways. Mm. So, yeah, just um, educate yourself on all of marketing because there's still a lot of good can come from traditional methods of marketing too. That's what I would say. Like try and be very broad if you're going down, it, you know, before you go down any narrow path. What are some of your other traditional marketing strategies? Um, a lot of face-to-face. So we did a lot of events early days um, so that we could have that face-to-face interaction. Um, we've done a lot of gifting. We've done a fair bit on Google, so SEO, SEM, um, we've, because we have an online store as well. So that's been great, um, a great tangible outcome for our online store. The online space we used as an educational piece. So we did have an online store, as Tali said, but we used it to educate our customers on turmeric. So we're obviously a niche in the health and wellness space being turmeric. We're also a product that people aren't used to. People do associate it with curry and that's something that we had to address early days despite the fact we knew what it was and what it tasted like. Not everyone else did. So we had to find a way to educate them on why turmeric, what it tastes like. And we used our online store to do that, to be that messaging device sort of educational platform. And that's what we've used from a Google digital marketing perspective and probably also ties into our socials is that it's educational. It's not a sales focus. We do rely on our distribution model to do that, but we do use that space for a different reason, if that makes sense. We use it to educate and that's what we think is really powerful when people are saying, oh, my my girlfriend was talking about turmeric this morning at breakfast, but what actually does it do, which is what the feedback we get so often. We're trying to give people a place where that answer is easily found um, and they're able to go and go, oh, that's why I have turmeric. It's for inflammation. It's for the whole range of things that it's for. So I think it's important to know that you do need to do that. Like everything can't just be sales focused. You can't always just be chasing the dollar. You have to sort of go through that thought process of a customer and the whole sale process of what they're thinking and what they're wanting before they get to the sale process. You can't just expect they know what you know or um, they want what you want. So you've got to be really cautious of that too, I think. Definitely. In terms of other spend, I'm just thinking of like our major marketing dollars. Probably a lot of it's gone to in-store as well. So we work with our retailers a lot. We've run competitions, um, on a point of sale in-store. We've advertised a lot through our distributors. So, And we've done traditional things, (laughs) legit traditional things like print, media um, i'm not sure how fruitful that was gotta try gotta try and that's yeah. the thing you've got to try a lot of things so yeah. just yeah it's not, trial and error it is all trial and error and a lot of it you won't know the direct outcome from but it you know can't um it can't hurt you never know what's going to work for your brand so just don't be too pigeonholed into one way or the other mm. keep an open mind yep. yeah is there ever a moment when you doubt Golden Grand success or your own success or even your capabilities of building this business and brand? I am going to say every day. (laughs) We are just humans. We're pretty humble in what we do. Um, I know I personally some days have decisions come across my desk and my first thought is I am nowhere near qualified to make this decision and I don't really know what I'm doing and you kind of just hope for the best. So I think from that perspective, the three of us probably could say that yeah, we doubt ourselves. We're humans. Um, there's no black book of secrets when you do something like this that goes, oh, choose A over B and then do this and then do that and you will turn out okay. You do have to take leaps of faith and you can be quite unsure of yourself when doing that, I think is very common and very normal and having that self-doubt I think probably makes you question more and makes, which is a good thing I think. It makes you look at all the alternatives and you're not sort of just like, oh, I'm doing that because I know what's best and um, I'm not going to run with it. So we definitely do doubt our capabilities, I would say. Um, in terms of doubting success, I think we're pretty good at acknowledging when things go well and saying, oh, we did this and we try and step back and whether it be having a moment between ourselves or going out for a nice meal together and going, th- like it's important to stop and see those little things along the way because without that you can get really caught up in it all and you can get to that burnout a lot quicker if you don't sort of stop and go, hey, guys, like, we got three new retail, like as small as the win is, we got three new retailers this week um, and they've all sought out how awesome and celebrating those little wins or celebrating a really positive conversation or when we get a testimonial back from one of our customers saying it actually really helped me and 
that's really what we're here to do is get that feedback. So when we do get that stopping and sort of putting technology down and putting down what we're doing and looking at each other and going, how awesome guys have actually changed someone's life and or changed their pain and changed their ailment, that's really cool. And sort of acknowledging that I think is something we're really good at and something that we all really focus on doing um, probably at least once or twice a week, we make sure that that's something we do. So, yeah, we have our moments. So if you were starting again, if you were to start everything from the beginning, would you do things differently or would you kind of take the same path? If I was to start again, I would do everything differently, but that's only because I know what I know. Mm-hmm. So if I was starting again, I wouldn't know what I know. So I would do it all the same. It's a very like, philosophical answer. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great so one. Yeah. So I've needed, we've needed to do it all wrong yeah. to learn you yeah. how to do it all right. So I wouldn't go back and do it all right. How would I know what was right? <laughs> I only know this now. Is this inception? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but now we're inside. The conversation's how the conversation's how. But it's so true though. It really frustrates yeah. when people are like, oh, yeah, I'd go back and do it like all different. I don't know. Like, yeah, that's the reality is. I like I couldn't do it all different because we didn't know shit three years ago. <laughs> I've learned it all. Mm. So, yes, I would. But, of course, now knowing what I know, for instance, just starting a new business, doing things very differently. Do you have to form a relationship with failure and start to love failure? Like at the start it was probably hard. You're like, oh, I didn't want to make that mistake. But now you're like, cool, made a mistake. It happened. I learned from it. Let's move on. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like couldn't be more passionate about the fact that you need to fall in love with failure and you need to be really positive in your mind around how to approach it and move through it. And you you also need to accept um, and really view it as a learning I think is really important and not looking at it as a mistake or failure and simply taking out what did I learn, what am I going to do differently next time, and then let's move on. Let's not dwell on it and let's not get all up in our heads about it. Let's just take the learning and admit, like, but making sure you pull out that learning, not just going, oh, I'm shit and I failed and onto the next task, going, hold on, why did I fail and what could have I done differently Um, and then moving on. So making sure that you do acknowledge that element of it I think is really important. And just remember we only hear about the success. Mm. The failure is happening tenfold of the success. success. It's everywhere. It's happening to everyone all the time. You just don't hear about it. So please, like, don't put the emphasis on making this instant success all the time perfect. It doesn't happen. That's not the reality. It certainly hasn't happened for us. Yes, we've had wins, but we've had so many more mistakes than wins. We just don't share them with everyone, you know, but – they're there. Of course they're there. And I think that if you're starting a new business or if you're into a business and you're questioning it, your failures are so normal. They're happening to everyone all the time. Like learn from them, grow with them. Don't think that they're not there. Mm. So what has been one of your biggest mistakes? We've had heaps. <laughs> we make mistakes all the time. Yeah, we've had heaps. <laughs> I can't pinpoint one big one. <laughs> at the time they're all catastrophic. Interestingly, um, <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, like in the beginning when you're young and fragile, a small one is catastrophic. But now if it was to happen, I was like, "Mm, bleep, whatever. whatever." As you grow, the mistakes get bigger and they hurt more, they cost a lot more, and they're harder to move through positively, but they grow because your business is bigger. Mm. So I think that like in the first year, the mistake probably would have been like, oh, you know, we misprinted that, we've sent an EDM with a spelling mistake. In the second year, it's like, oh, we ordered um, $20,000 worth of capsules that we can't sell. It's fantastic. Um, And then the third year, it's like, oh, you know, like we stuffed up a meeting with a major retailer. Mm. So they grow in proportion to your business, but there's been heaps of them. Closing questions. Who inspires you? Uh, We're inspired by people who do things bigger than themselves, people who sort of put their effort into businesses and and causes that better the world and better humanity, people that sort of think above and beyond, not necessarily entrepreneurs. Yeah. Selling shit on Instagram. (laughs) Like real everyday heroes, nurses, teachers, real people making Mm. good shit happen in the world. Yeah. Awesome. What makes you happy? Hazen. Tally's daughter. <laughs> oh, she's so cute. She's amazing. She's cute. Um, nice dinners, red wine, family, friends. Sleep. <laughs> sleep. I'm, what is sleep? <laughs> sleep makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> Real stuff. And what's next for the both of you individually and for Golden Grind? Golden Grind's parent company is going to um, have some new brands. So it'd be totally different to Golden Grind. Um, watch this space. One may already be out there. Do a plug, um, do a plug. Do a plug. <laughs> Feebless baby. Cloth nappies. Love it. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, he always put on an American accent. When I just said that. that. Yeah. Clark <laughs> Nappies. <laughs> he does it every time. Clark Nappies. Because it's kind of more of an American thing. It is. It? I think yeah. it's because they say, um, tired of putting plastic on your baby's bum. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Clark Nappies. I don't know why. I've become American when I yeah, sell my yeah. cloth nappies. Beavis Baby Cloth Nappies. Um, that's personally, uh, Golden Grind's got awesome things happening this year. We're on track. We've got cement laid and we're ready to build. So we're going up. Amazing. And for us personally, just carrying on, enjoying the little things in life, being happy every day. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.